Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Confluence Cast presented by Columbus Underground. We are a weekly Columbus-centric podcast focusing on the civics, lifestyle, entertainment, and people of our city. I'm your host, Tim Fulton. This week, I sat down with Blake Compton, the CEO of Compton Construction. We discussed some of the unique challenges in construction in Columbus, but primarily we focused on the life cycle of being a business owner, starting that business knowing what your role should be in that business. We delve deeper than we thought we would into the area commissions in Columbus. And then we talk about knowing when to bring an expert into your business. And at the end, the importance of having coaches and mentors. You can get more information on Compton Construction and the things that we discussed today in the show notes for this episode at theconfluencecast.com. Confluence Cast is sponsored by Best Bites Burgers, coming up October 13th. The event is your opportunity to taste the best burgers Columbus has to offer. Tickets for the event include burger samples from over a dozen Columbus restaurants and can be purchased at Best Bites. That's B-E-S-T-B-I-T dot E-S. Enjoy the interview. Sitting down with Blake Compton, Chief Executive Officer of Compton Construction. Blake, how are you? Good, good. Good. Here today to sort of talk about, first of all, Compton Construction, but also sort of talk about the landscape of change that's happening in Columbus and how Compton Construction sort of fits within it. First of all, what's the elevator speech on who Compton Construction is? So we're a commercial construction firm that focuses on design build as a delivery method, uh, where we try to be the sole point of contact for our clients uh, with the city, with the architects, designers. Um, We have niched ourselves in the brewery industry. Uh, We focused on learning how breweries are put together from a production standpoint, but also how to incorporate their aesthetic in the taproom space uh, or brew pub. And then finally, adaptive reuse, which is taking old buildings and finding new uses for them. Okay. What does design build mean specifically? So is it that sort of from design to build, like you were talking about, that you're the primary point of contact for the city, for the individual contractors that are working? So yeah, that's a good question. And it's, it's one, it's one that uh, if you ask uh, 20 builders or 20 architects, they're all going to have a little bit of a different answer. For us, it does mean we're we're sometimes the only contract that's signed. So you, you hire us to hire everyone else. So we're, we're literally the, the linchpin of, of success on your project. Rather than having four or five, you know, maybe you have an interior designer and an architect and an engineer and a structural engineer, and the owner is hiring each of those individually and trying to manage that process. I feel like it puts people on different sides of tables. Right. And well, make, yeah. And it's difficult for everybody to sort of be at the same table and communicating everything effectively. Yeah. And while that may be great for the client. Do you uh, end up assuming some liability? There's a substantial more liability. And I think that, you know, it it means sometimes that we make less money on those types of projects, but we feel that we can deliver a good project. And it speaks to the culture that I've tried to build where integrity is the most important thing. And, you know, if we make a mistake, we, we fix it. Right. When you started, was that sort of the nature of the work or was it much more like you're going to take whatever job you can get and however that work is structured, that's what you're going to take? I would say really how this company is, has, what it's turned into is, is really just formed in my early years being in construction. I first started out renovating old buildings. Okay. They were smaller projects and 
with that, you know, I, I kind of fell in love with, you know, tearing out an old space, but saving things and understanding the building and learning the building as we're turning it into a new use through that, where I started to work at, we did, that's what we did. We did design build. Okay. So we held all the contracts that way. Okay. And so you've always sort of worked that way and yes. you, you believe it's the best way to work. I think it's a good way to work. Some, some projects, sometimes it makes sense to, to have the architect on the other side of the table. Sometimes it, it uh, makes sense uh, to have the architect involved earlier and, and the builder involved later. Uh, it really just comes down to the client and, and their trust level. Okay. How did the company actually get started? What, what made you make the decision to make the jump to own Compton Construction. Yeah. Well, a quick story is that probably when you and I first met, I yeah. was a, a hooligan and I was running, I was a big soccer fan. And uh, that was a, a couple year period where I was laid off um, and underemployed, uh, but a full time soccer fan. Okay. Um, and uh, when I went back to work in 2011 uh, for my former employer, I was put on a couple job sites. And in the middle of it, uh, our whole company had this personality survey test that we had to take. The consultant on that How one. How big was the company? What com uh, can I ask what yeah, company it was? Yeah, it was, it's called Brexton Construction, actually okay. down in Grandview. Okay. Um, and they've they've grown really well in, in the last couple of years as, uh, as uh, most construction companies that do a good job have. I'm just curious why a construction company would have its employees do personality tests. Uh, I, you know, the owner of the company, you know, had a coach and the coach said, hey, let's, uh, you, you know, let's assess and make sure everyone's in the right seat on the bus. And I was uh, the odd man out there. I, I was not supposed to be a job site superintendent. And literally in the blink of an eye, I went from a, a assistant superintendent to the vice president of business development for the Based company. on a personality test. Yeah. That's awesome. Now, there, was, there were other things I was doing outside of my job that, that, that showed that I could do it. Right. And they just flipped the switch and said, go sell. You know, I, I just started focusing on industries I liked, the brewery industry being one and uh, tech industry being the other. Okay. Um, and, and then within six months, almost all the business was coming through me and, uh, I, I started to feel a cultural clash. Um, Brexton's a great company, but their, their direction and their culture is not who I am completely. Okay. And I felt, um, I kind of felt disingenuous on how I was selling. Uh, and so I decided to to look for another job. And in the same week of deciding to look for another job, a project fell in my lap that was an emergency situation and needed to get done. And uh, I had somehow been prepared to become a contractor. I had an LLC registered and I had some money sitting aside and decided, uh, you know, I'd asked the client, I said, hey, I'm gonna start my own company and do this project. Are you cool with that? Do you have the, your faith, the faith in me to do yeah. this? And I had, I had her as a client. So I jumped in and, and made it happen. And that first job was basically my line of credit. I got enough money to start a company and I didn't have a bank loan, didn't have a business plan. I was just, I knew how to do commercial construction renovation. And I had two part-time employees. 30 days after I started the company, my dad who was my boss, who was a part owner of the of Brexton, okay. decided that he didn't want to be an owner there anymore and wanted to come work for me. Okay. And uh, he, he joined me after after 30 days. And I've heard you state that, you know, the construction industry is a lot of father and son stuff, yeah. but but not necessarily this way. Right. It's much more the, the son comes on as an apprentice. I mean, technically, your father works for you. Correct. Got it. What's his role? So he's a project manager. Okay. Um, you know, when he first started out, and it was just me and him and, and a couple of young guys. He was the secretary when he started out. <laughs> yeah, he was the secretary. <laughs> uh, 
I, he, he was my safety net and he allowed me. And a lot of times I was selling a project. I was estimating the project. I was project managing. I was wearing a lot of hats as, right. as many entrepreneurs do. When as you have to when you start. Right. And, and really we were focusing on him doing the bigger projects that we had and I was doing the smaller ones. Uh, so, and, and then as the years have gone on and I brought business partners on and lost business partners and have grown my team from four people to 18. Okay. He's kind of just slid into the role of like a senior project manager. So he really focuses, you know, he's doing the Columbus Idea Foundry. He's going to be working uh, with Seventh Son on their expansion project. And uh, he's working on, you know, he works on the larger projects. Okay. And you are not doing project management anymore. But no. your, your, your role at this point is per the website, business development, marketing, and then pre-construction, which is basically just consulting, right? Correct. Uh, you know, I, I also, I deal, I deal with the problems too. So if, okay. we, if we have a problem on a project, whether it's a subcontractor failing, uh, a city issue, uh, client issues, design issues, emergencies, I jump into the problems. Okay. Since you brought it up, let's jump into it just a little bit. What are some of the problems that are u- unique to Columbus, you think, or things mm-hmm. that, that could be better? That could be anything from lack of talent, lack of subcontractors, uh, issues with the city. Okay. Uh, issue. I mean, there's a building in San Francisco that's leaning a little bit too. Are there any environmental concerns here? So, I mean, I, I would say on the private and public side, there's so many things that we could do better. Okay. I think the construction industry part, you know, sometimes we're just in the background and you don't, you don't see what we're doing. You, you know, it, we're not the glamorous story. We're not the hot chicken takeovers of the world, you know? So when a new construction company opens their doors, people aren't clamoring to go and see what the doors look like, you know? Yeah. But no here one... you are on the confluence cast. <laughs> yes. And so I feel like both sides, it's public and private. We need to embrace technology more. It's just not happening quick enough. Uh, you know, we still fax in our industry okay. on a regular. I mean, I have subcontractors, wonderful guys do a great job. I've had companies for a long time. They don't know how to email, Okay, you know, like that, that's part of our industry still. And it's not like they're getting cut out of the industry either. The industry isn't forcing them to update. I mean, our, our local builders exchange, which is a, a local organization that, you know, brings all of our, the competitors together and, and works on industry standards, mm-hmm. still faxes their marketing pieces. Okay. I mean, it, it's, it's that bad. I, I, I actually am not involved in the organization because of that. I just feel that that's something that needs to. You just can't handle faxes. I'm over faxes. Okay. I can certainly see the frustration there. What about the city and sort of how it works? Because a a lot of what you do is, I mean, it really just comes down to permitting and inspections, right? So, but there's zoning. Okay. There's uh, working with the area commissions to get things approved, to get to to varying stages. So like, you know, putting a restaurant in short north, you're probably going to need a parking variance. And right. that process can take, you know, if you know what you're doing, can take 60 to 90 days. If you don't know what you're doing, it can take, you know, six months. Okay. And that can, that can fail, make a business fail. Right, exactly. Because, uh, you're, you know, you have investors on the line at that point. I've certainly heard anecdotally about projects that, like, get going, and then they literally have to secure more financing because it's taking so long yeah. for everything to get done. Are there improvements that could be made there? You said subcontractors could certainly, you know, sort of all come in line or rather online together, what are the things that the city could do? So uh, I'd say that some of the things they're they're doing, some of the things they're working on, you know, if you would ask me this question two years ago, I'd say, hey, when I need to buy an extra inspection, 
Um, I shouldn't have to show up and print out a piece of paper, take a, a tag and wait in line to pay $150 so they can then enter the information that I printed out into their system, into a computer. That you could have entered yourself yes. on a website. They fixed that. Okay. So that's, that's, that's a big win. I mean, to talk about how many hours of time that saved me and how many days of business that saved businesses is an unquantifiable number, that one little thing. Now, when they move downtown next year, they're looking to take, basically they see about 200 people, 200 applicants a day. They want to cut that number in half. One, because there's no parking. I mean, we're, we just... Because currently the Department of Building and Zoning Services is where? It's on Carolyn Avenue, which is off of North Broadway off 71. Okay. So it's it's at an easily accessible semi-central location, but it's not downtown in the thick of it. Correct. And they're, and they're moving it downtown next year. Yes. Are you aware of how they plan to cut the number of people that they're seeing further? Yeah. Yeah, well, one of the, one of the, the downtown special improvements district did a kind of an invite only thing for downtown contractors and talked about this with the building department. And okay. One of the things, a couple of things that they're doing is right now we still submit drawings via paper. Okay. And, and triplicates, and sometimes when you're doing zoning stuff, you have to f- submit 15 copies. Um, and so we're going to be able to submit online. They're going to be able to review and edit online, and then. We'll get automatic emails that say, here's your comments, and then you can edit it and send it back to them. I know this sounds novel and like it's 2016, but like this is revolutionary. Honestly. At least for the city of Columbus. Yeah. And so that, I mean, that saves a lot of time. That saves a lot of time. There's going to, you know, they've, they've also added some over-the-counter permits um, and some overnight permits where you, you pay extra money. Right. Um, but it's really a win-win-win situation. The extra money sometimes means businesses open up 30 days earlier, which is generally worth a couple thousand dollars. Absolutely. The unions win because the it's an elective thing for the plans examiner. So they elect to stay after hours and pe- be paid extra to do the work. And so you're not you're actually kind of creating job opportunities for these union workers. So that's a win. And then the city gets stuff off their plate. And these are city union employees. Yes. Okay. Yes. You've talked about a couple of improvements that have recently happened and things coming down the pike. What are the good things about Columbus and why do you choose to live and work here? Well, it's, it's This def- may be beyond Compton Construction. Yeah. Right. So for me, I fell in love with Columbus. Uh, are you from here? I'm from Granville. Oh, okay. So I, I moved to Columbus in 2009. I moved to be a full-time soccer fan. Okay. I lived in North Campus and went to Ruby Tuesdays uh, way too much, had way too many trailer parks and and enjoyed my walks to Crew Stadium, and uh, I really I fell in I fell in love with Columbus back in 2011 when the Hooligans Bar was getting shut down, and mm-hmm. I saw you know here we were in this situation the, build, the business was going to be shut down, and everyone kind of united around us. This was actually before Kickstarter, but we used the PayPal button and raised like fifteen thousand dollars to keep our doors open for the rest of the season. It didn't meet building code standards, so there was some life safety concerns with the fire rating of the ceiling. Oh, just the act building yeah okay the building and so well Blake why didn't you just fix it because I didn't own the business and I didn't own the building fair I'm kidding so you guys were able to raise money the bar isn't around anymore right no so that that money paid for all the designers the permitting fees the fines and then to get a parking variance because we were required to do that and that was really like my eye-opening experience with that process and I said holy crap like I, I did this but 
the average business owner cannot do this and like this could fail people. And so I started to attend those meetings and really learn what works and what doesn't work just by, you know, real world experience. Right. Any thoughts on the area commissions and sort of, they are the ones giving the parking variant or at least the recommendations Recommendations, for them. So now having worked on the north side, east side, south side, west side, and seeing how they're all run, they all really have the same problem. It's, it's, it's that I don't think they have enough education uh, from the city on what they're supposed to do. Now, that's not to say people in those groups don't know what they're doing. Right. Um, it's really to say that there's not enough people know what the purpose is. So when you go to these groups and there is an angry neighbor about someone building a house next to them and complaining about parking, you know, they might have a, a legitimate point, but they don't really know how to get their point off because they don't know why you know, why they're there to communicate and what the purpose of the area commission is. Right. Well, and the, at least from my understanding of it, the inherent purpose is that they provide advice and consent. Well, excuse me, not consent. Mm -hmm. They provide advice and recommendations to council and the mayor's office. They are elected, most of them locally. They can be appointed by the mayor. mayor. Yes. But I certainly see what you're saying in that, you know, somebody comes and complains about, you know, a vacant house. What do they do? I mean, they send they're going to send a memo or something, uh, City Hall. Mm -hmm. And then is that the end of it? What you know, what happens? And then how do those grievances get solved? You know, sometimes it doesn't. And I've, I've, I've found in my experience that a lot of times it's the angriest of people. Their voices are the ones that are heard. And and the the reasonable people, they don't want to attend every single meeting. And so they go, oh, wow, it's going to get approved. And they don't go to the next step meeting or the the final council variance meeting. And the angry person does. Right. And so from a council standpoint or the board of zoning adjustment standpoint, they go, well, it looks like the neighbors aren't happy and maybe we shouldn't approve this. And I think that's one of the situations that's kind of a flaw with our city because I've, I've watched some young couples who want to expand their home and the civic association and area commission are all for it, but some angry neighbor stops them and then they decide to move, you know, move out and, right. and, and move to a different community because of, you know, one little situation that common sense would say you want young homeowners renovating their homes so they can have a family. I and feel bettering like, the community. Yeah, right. I feel like that's a good thing. So what you would recommend is, in terms of what your earlier point was, is for council and the mayor's office to make it more clear what's going to be yeah. coming downstream from the commissions. I, I think it's more clear and uh, it goes back to technology for me. It's very convoluted to find each of these organizations bylaws and understand what they're supposed to do. Right. So if as a person, an applicant p- applying, if they can't find the bylaws, Im- imagine the people that might be on the board who are representing the bylaws. Right. Well, know? and and having been somebody who has submitted something very minor, such as putting, you know, signage on a thoroughfare, you have to, you know, submit 10 copies of it and you have to, and you have no guarantee that anybody's going to get back to you or know when that, what meeting that's going to be heard at. And you sort of have to keep on these people to, to find out what the process is. And even then it's not clear what the process is. It's not clear. And at the end of the day too, a lot of these people are volunteers. So even when they fail you, they don't return your email or your phone call. They're volunteers, you know, and and you can only hold them, you know, so accountable. Right. Um, I I would say that we need more Ryan Schicks. We need more small business concierge folks. Okay. And I think that we need them maybe specialized. Maybe there's one of those in each department. 
and they're a team and they work together to communicate. So when the small business concierge for those that aren't aware is a new position at the city. Yes. Ryan Schick holds that position. Correct. How much work have you done with his office? We, we do a lot of work together. We first started working together um, uh, with Mikey's late night slice with the shipping container. Okay. Trying to get that open. Um, and then, and, and basically I, I just kind of let him know what's going on and I give him just, you know, I only raise concerns when there's, it's worthwhile. You know, a lot of times I'm saying, Hey, I applied for a permit for the idea founder today, or Hey, it's been five weeks and we still haven't heard comment. You know, can you check in for us? Right. And, and he does a good job of just talking to, you know, he creates that rapport and that relationship on his side that allows him to have a quick conversation that might take me a week to get an answer and he can just come back and say hey you know it's still in review x y and z reason in your mind is that his primary role to sort of be tackling and blocking and putting out those fires or shouldn't it be a slightly more formal process i guess i don't know i i I mean maybe the informality is great but there's only one of him the i yeah i agree there's only one that's why i say there needs to be more and i think that i like i like the informality uh i'm not uh, a form filler i'm not very good at filling out forms okay um, so to think I'd have to fill out a form to get him to go and do something might, might add, uh, some effort and, and, uh, make it not as worthwhile. But really, I think to me, it's, he's supposed to hold your hand and tell you, go this way, go that way. You know, so when you're looking for information, it says I have to turn in 10 forms, right? Well, you can go and talk to someone and they say, Oh, you're going to put a sign up. You only need to submit three because of this reason, right? And the form might not say that. And so it, you know, to the random applicant that, doesn't do this all the time it's scary well because the form has all these caveats if this happens then you got to do this and if this if you plan to do this ever in the future then you better make sure that you include this information i will say that you know across the board on the building department side almost everyone's a phone call away from when once you know their number i collect our building department uh, cards and i staple them on my wall and uh, it's kind of like you know now i have all these people that i can call up and ask a question and they answer it so that there's a benefit to just picking up the phone and you can solve a lot of problems that way. And that's part of why I like Ryan is that he, he's good. I can call him, say, hey, go look this up and he'll go look it up and get me an answer real quick. That's great. A large part of your business that you've mentioned is the adaptive reuse of buildings, yes. meaning you sort of keep the shell, keep the general structure of it and put it to a different use than it was before or basically not tear it down and build something new. Correct. A lot of that is by, excuse me, some of it I imagine is by necessity. Simply there are historic districts in the city that require you to keep buildings up if you can. True. But I imagine you do have a, a passion for it. Yeah. You know, you hear about these new projects, these, you know, knock a building down and then you go from a one story to a six story. And I love the fact that, you know, we're, we're building uh, a new generation of interesting buildings that are up to building code and aren't built with asbestos or environmental or have environmental issues. And know? meet all ADA codes. And yes. Right. ADA codes of 2016, because <laughs> they'll probably change. Right. But um, yeah, exactly. And, and, and building, building new is a good thing in my eyes. But at the same time, there are buildings out there that have history or the community has history and the story of those buildings is important to that history. And I feel sometimes it is more expensive to renovate a building rather than knock it down and build up. Well, I mean, one example, I grew up on Indianola Avenue Mm -hmm. between Oakland and Northwood. And so just west, you know, family walks down to High Street is, you know, this series of what at a time were homes and has been converted into businesses. And they're talking about tearing all those down. In my head, it diminishes the character of the neighborhood to an extent. 
Yeah. What well, it, it I, I, I would say it transforms the character, and that's not always a good thing. Okay. You know, that's a better way of putting it. I um, think. I, you know, it, there's something new coming about, and some other person's life will be benefited because of that. Someone will put their business there, and maybe wildly succeed. Maybe you guys will get a hot chicken takeover. Like, then everyone will be happy. You know, because uh, the answer to happiness in the city, chicken and mac and cheese, is hot chicken takeover. <sighs> um, talk about some of the projects that you're proud of. Oh man, I like unique and different, and I like bringing modern to Columbus. You know, more and more I'm getting closer to getting into residential. We are building our first home this year. Okay. Where's that? In West Franklinton. Okay. Brand new build? New build. Yeah. It was a it was a land bank lot. Um Great. my my second employee, my estimator, Jeremy Miller. He uh, is a drummer for the Cordial Sins. Okay. And he saved up his money and designed his own house and we're gonna build it for him. And it's a it's a pretty cool modern house, and that's the kind of construction that I want to be known for is, is modern and, and different, not you know stucco and brick, tan and brown kind of buildings. So right, and just to backtrack a little yeah, bit, yeah. the land bank is a collection of vacant properties that the city owns. Some of, some of them are just literally plots of land. Yes. Some of them are actually homes. They'll be linked in the show notes, but you can actually search. They have prices on them. The city does offer some assistance with financing if someone listening is interested in those properties. Persistence is key to that success. If you want okay. to do that, it takes a long time. Assume three to six months to get through that process. Okay. But what are, the, what are the hurdles? Because I've, I, I've heard of yeah. hurdles, but I'm not yeah. aware exactly on what they are. Yeah, so I, I have limited experience with, with that organization. I did donate uh, uh, some land to them this year. We had bought some land, and after we had paid more in taxes than we did for the land, we were like, okay, we, we, we need to get rid of this thing because we're not doing anything with it other than not having to pay taxes on it did you get a write-off on that uh yeah, yeah. okay uh we did get a write-off and that was part of the reason why we donated Just to curious. the bank and uh but there there are some great values i mean he, he's getting a tax abatement um and i think it depends on the neighborhood and the situation if you're going to get that but you've also a lot of times there were, was a house there so infrastructure's there right you're saving money on a water tap you're saving money on sanitary lines and uh sometimes uh on ele- on electrical even though it's a new build because it's already been sort of yeah. pushed push back into that part of the lot Correct. okay there's some value there and it, it's probably lot by lot so that some situations you're not going to get that but um, no, just the filling out the forms, waiting on the answers. You know, there's a lot of chicken and egg where you have to show proof of financing. But in order to do that, you need to have the land. In order to have the land, you need to show proof of financing. So right. it's kind of, you know, you have to work through all of those things. And it takes a while. But again, if you're interested in building a home, and it's a great way to save some money and, uh, you know, be a part of urban infill and, and not knock a house down a lot of the times because it's already been knocked down. Right. When you come to the land bank and say, I want to purchase this plot of land, do you have to come with like plans already you have to have some kind of schematic idea i mean it probably could be a hand drawing drawn on the back of a napkin i think they might accept that but they might not okay i I think he had a floor plan and he had some elevations of what the outside of the house would look like which is not a final that's not correct you can't build on that no right and and one of the caveats on the land bank is that you do have to go get an approval from your local area commission for the city i i think from my perspective that why they do that is to say hey this is government this is the public's interest that we're buying these properties and so when we sell them to someone we need to make sure that the local neighborhood is okay with what that someone is doing right 
Do you think the not to keep diving into yeah. the area commissions and I feel like I'm going to end up having to reach out to somebody at the city to like sort of get their take on it but are the area commissions going to exist in 10 years? I mean, are they Wow, yeah. It seems as though the city pays courtesy to them in that, you know, you have to get approval if there's something from the land bank and you ha- if there's, you know, new signage at least in the historical area commissions that it should go through them. But the city has been known to also just completely circumvent them, certainly in signage, certainly in buildings, certainly in parking variances. Uh, And also not all areas of the city are served by area commissions, correct? Correct. So, And and on top of that, some of them are served, uh, some of them have checkpoints that are civic associations or neighborhood uh, groups. And some of them are private entities that are nonprofits, but not connected to the city. And And some of them are both. Yes. Like the Italian Village Commission is both. Really? Yeah, it is both the nonprofit arm and there is the arm that's directly associated with the city. Ah. One of them, you know, builds nice signs that, you know, are wayfinding signs in the neighborhood. And then the other one is the one that actually approves new builds, approves rooftop patios, that sort of thing. To answer your question, I don't know if I, I I sincerely hope that the air commissions will be evolved in 10 years. I hope they're still around in some form uh, as a community checkpoint. But I hope there's uh, more educated and better equipped um, residents that are running those organizations. Because sometimes I feel like they're they're sitting on an island alone and they're surrounded by angry neighbors who are mad at them for them trying to do their job as a volunteer. Right. Well, I think you gave the absolute right answer there in terms of, you know, what's going to happen to them. Over the past four years that you've had Compton Construction, you talked about sort of how you had the impetus for the company to start. Yeah. How were you able to, we talked to a, a lot of business owners and sort of how their role evolves. How were you able to sort of step back from doing project management and now just doing, you know, business development, marketing, pre-construction? Well, I didn't know what I didn't know. And I jumped in not knowing what I was good at and what I was bad at. And what are you bad at? <laughs> filling out forms. Okay. Um, and you need, and somebody's got to be good. Somebody's got to be good at that. I okay. don't have to be good at that. And, uh, you know, some of the things that I wasn't good at in 2012 and 13, I, I've really learned how to be a lot better at, you know, firing people. That was a nightmare. I, I my first fire, I mean, you almost you hired him back. <laughs> you could have taken all my money in a poker game, how bad my poker face was. I mean, my hand was over my face. My body was crossed. I sat completely on the other side of the table, Ugh. so far away from the guy. Uh, and now, you know, I know how to do it. And I wouldn't say it's because I'm callous or dead inside. Uh, <laughs> we hope not. Hope not. But after the last week I've had, sometimes I feel like it. But some of the things that I've learned have come from my failures. So having two business partners, both for two years, uh, one year where they overlapped, um, and then having both of them exit and dealing with that and learning what I was good at and what I was not good at and you know the gaps that they had filled and then all of a sudden were opened again and how I kind of evolved and changed my company to to fill those gaps. Because you then end up making a choice of, do I get another business partner to fill that gap? Do I hire, you know, an outside firm, let's say it's accounting or something like that, or do I bring it in house? And that's a, you know, you got to do certainly a cost benefit analysis there. Can I ask, were the business partners also investors in the company? I would say any business partner, if they're on paper, is an investor. They're investing uh, something. Financially, neither of them entered the partnership uh, through, through money. Okay. Yeah. And was that simply by, did you bring them on? I was like, I have a bag of peanuts and free ownership. 
when Dennis DeVerte first joined me, I was, I think I was, I think I made 16 grand my first year in business. Okay. Uh, for personally. personally. Right. Um, that's pretty hard to live on. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think I had just raised myself to 25,000 as a salary. And I said, Dennis, that's what I can pay you. You can get what I get. Dennis and I had the, had the, have the but same. also have an ownership stake. Yes. And he was doing, I imagine, more than $25,000 a year worth of work. Uh, a substantial amount. Right. Yes. And, and he came in with, both of us came in very green on what being a partner meant. And right. And really very green on where we were going. He came in and realized I wasn't good at filling out forms and there were lots of forms that needed to be filled out and that we had in a whole side of the business, the administrative accounting side that was really lacking. I'd right. say that was my biggest mistake from uh, day one that I didn't focus more on the accounting side. And I think I've made it, made a lot of mistakes there uh, that have cost me money that we're, we've now really kind of fixed. And it's a constant battle, but uh, we're doing a lot better job now. Can you talk about that a little yeah. bit more just in terms of what advice do you have for a new business owner, be it starting a bar or a pedicab company or a construction company? Yeah. Like, Pay attention to the finances, but does that mean making sure that you you know know how to do accounting? Or I, would, I wouldn't even say it's. I mean, yeah, pay attention to your books. That's important. Don't don't you don't need to know how to do accounting. You just need to know how to read your reports. Okay, and your reports need to be accurate. So well, how are you generating reports if you don't know how to do accounting? You know, I have employees. I have a focus CFO, which is a rent to CFO. That comes in once a week, and then I have a really good CPA firm that provides, you know, uh, accounting and financial consulting. Okay, what sort of shortcomings? Did, not necessarily shortcomings that you discovered in yourself, but what are you really thankful that you had when you got going? Again, advice yeah. for a new yeah. business owner. It, it's the questions I ask new business owners when I'm talking to, now to them about like potentially being a tenant in one of the buildings that I recently purchased. And that's, what is your partnership like? And when I hear it's 50-50, I say, well, is it in writing? What happens when one of you, when one of you disagrees? And they, don't, they say, we won't disagree. I'm like, that's a lie. You, know, right. you won't disagree for five years or 100 years, but at some point you'll disagree. Right, or your estates will disagree yeah. with each other. And so, you know, I said, have a good operating agreement and then and vet it. Read it with your partner. Make sure both partners or multiple partners, everyone has a lawyer that looks at it too. I can say that Dennis and I and, and then the next partner, Steve, all of us page by page read our operating agreement. And we all, when we signed it, agreed to everything that was in pap on paper. But when we had to do the exit, there were a lot of things that we were like, wait, that doesn't make sense. That's not fair. Because we didn't we hadn't gone through an exit, so we didn't understand the exit. Right. So it sounded good in theory. But Can you give just just a, a vague example of that? Is it sort of like, was there a clause that if there's an exit, so-and-so person automatically receives this amount of continued equity and this amount of cash? Was it something like that or... There was there was some ambiguous definitions okay. that were not specific enough to the point that you know we 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 didn't see eye to eye on what it meant. Even yeah. if it's on the best of terms, an exit is still a breakup. Correct. Right. And, and it's so a somebody's it's generally get... a financial breakup. Right. You know? And um, what do people argue about? Money and yeah. sex. Right. Yeah. So yeah. don't have sex with your business I, partner. I haven't in years. Good. <laughs> so the advice is that. Have a good operating agreement if you're getting a business partner. How do you put no, that together? That's a good question. Look, everyone, when they start out, has no money. Okay. And you need to wear a bunch of hats. I just, I just want to know that you, when I look at an entrepreneur, I want to know that they understand how many hats they're wearing. 
and that it's not one hat and they can do it all and that they are the they can make the best food in the city and they can also hang the drywall and run the electric when i hear those things what they're saying is that they don't value my services they don't value what i do and they don't understand when they need to bring an expert in right so knowing you need to bring an expert in you know there are resources out there to get free or cheap legal advice put an agreement together that makes sense at the time that you have the money or do whatever you can put it in writing without legal support, right. but know that you need to get it sometime and you need to do it when the, you know, the sun is out and everyone's happy, right. not when someone's exiting out the back door. Right. Talk a little bit more about how your role has evolved. When I first started out, I was trying to build a company without really knowing where I wanted to take it. Dennis came on and helped me focus on my why and help build a company with a vision that was bigger than me. And then when- That's gotta feel good. It was awesome. Yeah. Uh, what, what he did, honestly, in the, the, the winter of 2013, we launched our, our current website. Immediately overnight, I stopped having to sell. Immediately, everyone got it. They knew what we were doing and why we were doing it. And so that was such a big benefit that he's brought, he brought to the table. And then Steve came in and brought process. We, had, we, we could build stuff, but we, we could really tell that it was not repeatable and you couldn't grow it. I couldn't bring a random project manager from another company in. And they could teach them how you worked because yeah. you didn't have a process of Correct. how you worked. So Steve really brought that process and kind of allowed us to amplify our sales because throughout the history of the company, we've never had a sales issue. It's, we've always gotten more business than we know what to do with. It's just balancing that out and delivering on our promises. And so what I learned in that moment with, with Steve was I need to stop being a project manager because I was just I couldn't follow the process I was too client focused so I was always bending to the client and doing it the way I felt the client wanted to achieve you know the finished product which is a good thing and and I still do that in my role but we limit my contacts with the clients because we want to move the project forward well you I imagine are the guy that sort of when the project starts if it's a large enough project, Mm -hmm. you're the guy that works with them and says, okay, what do you need? And then you sort of compile everything and then you hand it off to a project manager. Correct. Okay. In some cases I show up to like the weekly meetings, like the idea foundries or the seven sons or hot chicken takeover where, you know, it's, it's bigger, it's bigger than just the project. I mean, we do a lot of those projects where it's bigger than just, you know, building out for a business. There's a lot of, I feel like we're amplifying the voice and we're amplifying the success or the opportunity for those businesses. Right. So I try to stay involved in there to make sure that it's getting driven the right direction and kind of focus on, you know, a litmus test of where everyone's at at all times. Well, and those are the passion projects. Those are also the high profile projects for you. Yes. Yeah. Talk a little bit about the philosophy that comes because Compton Construction seems to have a philosophy toward philanthropy or at least community involvement. Can you talk about that a little bit? Our involvement in the community is just really about being authentic and also being involved in the communities that we work in. I always feel, especially now that we're doing, you know, million dollar projects and multiple of those where we're shutting down roads or we're making loud sounds in people's neighborhoods. And, you know, every morning for six months, you have to see guys going to a Porta John's. Like, there are things that are like not most pleasant, but it's part of construction. Right. And it's needed to shut an alleyway to get to X, Y, and Z. And because of those things, I feel like when I'm doing work in Italian Village, I want to get involved in Italian Village and make sure that the community groups and the organizations that are, are making the community better know that they have support from the people that are helping build up that community. That's the simplest way to put it. And then I also just 
enjoy helping. My mom, I, you know, my dad was in construction. I'm third generation, but my mom was a social worker and, uh, you know, is a, is a therapist. And so I was really, and we were a foster family. So I was really raised okay. uh, around helping people. And I just, just kind of ingrained in me. Great. Talk about sort of the position that you're in right now and where you see the company going. Yeah. When my, my last business partner, Steve, left at the end of last year, there was this gap about like kind of he was the vice president of construction and he was kind of ma- he was managing the project managers. I realized I didn't want to fill that position immediately. I feel like that position is important. But one of the side effects of him leaving is that all of a sudden now my project managers didn't have that checkpoint. So they were a little bit more autonomous. And so I let go of worrying about, you know, where they were and just focused on when they needed me. OK, because they all are. Capable. And that's putting a lot of faith in your people. Absolutely. Yeah. I also took my marketing. Which can be a good and a bad thing. And and I've seen the successes and the failures. And I took my marketing manager who had a degree in accounting but fell into marketing. And I promoted him to general manager because one of the bottlenecks I saw this year was that I wasn't at the office enough to approve simple things. And I also realized one day, I'm like, why am I approving uh, to cut a check to our printing company for $57? Right. I don't need to do that. You know, that's not part of... That shouldn't be your role. Yeah. And so I I shifted him into managing the business. And now all of a sudden, my company really runs itself. There are things that they need me for. There are times where I undermine without, without realizing it, where... They'll make decisions and I'll come in I'm like, why are we doing it that way? And I'm just the classic business owner. Well, and they point. literally say, or at least say to themselves, we already went through this and we already figured out the way to do it. Right. And you sort of come in and stir the shit up. Yes. And I, I break up process. And so I try not to do that. And we also, it is a jovial scenario. We have an open office. So, so when someone's upset, everyone's upset. Okay. And so you really, you've got to have a good energy, but that's really elevated me to a position this year where I can really focus on, you know, the high level clients, the six months to a year out projects and building a relationship. And then honestly, just continuing to grow myself. I mean, having a good coach this year. And then at the end of the day, taking time for myself. I mean, for three years, I wasn't healthy. I was working way too many hours and I was not focusing on, you know, me being an okay person. And I, this year, I really feel like I've taken that energy and you know, applied it to pastimes and, and having life outside of work. One last thing I want to touch on, you've mentioned a couple of times, you know, mentors and coaches. Can yeah. you talk about the significance of that in building your business, but also structuring your business and, and, and realizing your shortcomings? Yeah. When I first started my company, I was in a small mastermind group and it was four or five uh, small business owners. And they really helped me take, you know, the first month I met with them, I had printed out this sheet and like wrote all these facts down about pros and cons of where I was working, my LLC and the hooligans. And within within three months later, I was down to just that LLC. And they helped me realize that I was just doing all of these things and I wasn't doing any of them that well and I needed to just focus. Right. So that was really important into jumpstarting me into saying, hey, maybe I can do this on my own. And so I had that and then I had a leadership coach for a while that was just focusing on personal development and like making me a better leader. How'd you find that person? Uh, it was Dan Stover. If you remember him, I think he's still around, but, uh, how did I find him? Oh, I, I don't know. We went on uh, a double date once and that's, I found out what he did. And then 
all of last year, I was in a Vistage group, which is a little higher level uh, leadership group, small business owners to medium sized business owners. But the requirement is that you have to do a million in business a year okay. or be on the upward trajectory for that. Okay. So there's quite a bit of cost. I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, I hear it's, it's more now, but I think it was like a thousand bucks a month. It was expensive. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, but it was immersive and it was so valuable to have one. We had this coach, Artie Isaac, who's just oh, a, a yeah. wildly creative, disruptive man who really knows how to engage your thought process and, and change your views on whatever you're doing. Right. Um, but then surrounding yourself with successful business owners who are trying to get better. And we all know that, you know, we have that weight on our shoulders and you get to know them over the years. And and it's a whole day once a month where you spend the whole day together as all as as business owners working through each other's problems. So that was really valuable. Yeah. And I had a strategic coach that focused on kind of the day to day where it's like, we got this problem today, let's fix it. And and he was there. And that was all of last year. I really feel like those two coaching groups last year, I probably spent thirty to forty percent of my time in coaching last huh. year and, and that was like an MBA. Yeah. So this year I've really like learned how to let go of some things because of all my practicing last year. Right. Well, and I think that's another part of advice, not, not necessarily for somebody starting out, but for somebody who's maybe hit a rut yeah. or somebody who can't figure out how to get to the, that next step. A, a coach is, is always, I always suggest that you have a mentor or, or someone that you can confide in on a monthly basis that either is in your industry or is connected to what you want to be. My current coach right now, uh, One Purpose is the company's name, and he's a business coach, but also um, focuses on meditation. Okay. And so one of the goals for, for working with him was to, one, show up on time to things. That was like a, a little thing that I struggle with. Okay. And then also be intentional and make sure that the emotions I'm feeling and the way I'm thinking and talking are on purpose. And I, I know and, and do and say what I want to and, and why I'm feeling why I feel. And it's, it's been amazing to be able to tackle, you know, I, I you saw on Facebook, I was, uh, regularized yeah. over the weekend and, uh, I've had to deal with some anger over the weekend that I was able to really just like let go. I really wasn't angry about the situation. I, the first time I got mad about it was when we were trying to install some cameras and my dad and my roommate were telling stories about something that had nothing to do with anything. And I didn't know how to put the camera in. I got angry, but then I was able to deescalate the situation and explain why I, I had an outburst and explain what I needed to move on. And we dealt with the situation. And, and before working with Juan, I, I couldn't do things like that. That's and awesome. So, yeah, that was really, really, really valuable. Blake, thank you so much for your time today. I think a lot of great advice and it seems like you guys are on a great path. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Confluence Cast presented by Columbus Underground. Again, you can get more information on what we discussed today in the show notes for this episode at theconfluencecast.com. Please rate, subscribe, share this episode of the Confluence Cast with your friends, your family, your contacts, your enemies, your favorite contractor. If you're interested in sponsoring the Confluence Cast, you can get in touch with us. We can be reached by email at info at theconfluencecast.com. Our theme music was composed by Benji Robinson. I'm your host, Tim Fulton. Have a good week. Thank you.